Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Praise the Lord. Okay, we're continuing our march through Mark. Okay, we're going to be in chapter 2. So far, Mark has been showing us the authority of Jesus. We saw his authority over temptation, over nature, over uh, the lives of men and of demons and of sickness. Uh, We saw him heal a man of leprosy. Last week, we saw how a paralyzed man was uh, taken by his friends to Jesus, where they ripped a hole in the roof and lowered him down as Jesus was teaching. Uh, We already saw the authority of Jesus over sickness and disease in healing the paralyzed man, though we saw that Jesus not only healed him physically, but more importantly and most importantly, he healed him spiritually, telling the man, son, thy sins be forgiven thee, showing us that Jesus had authority over sin. And again, that is the most important and wonderful thing of all. And I say it's the most important and the most wonderful for this man that was paralytic but healed spiritually. It was more important than him being healed physically because this life only lasts so long. So even if you get a hundred years here, it pales in comparison to eternity. And eternity is a long time. Uh, So having your sins forgiven is all important, and it's important for all of us uh, because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and all have missed the mark required by God to get to heaven. Uh, Sinlessness. There's no one in this room that could say they're sinless. Uh, Otherwise, you've just created and started the first sin of lying. Okay, we've all sinned and uh, needs to be dealt with. If you miss heaven, if you miss heaven, the only other place to go in eternity is hell. There is no in-between. The Bible speaks of heaven and speaks of hell. Um, And again, most people realize they've sinned at one point in their lives, but most people don't realize that sin holds eternal consequences, and not good ones. The Bible says the soul that sins will surely die. Dying in your sin brings you into an eternal separation from God, in a very real place called hell. Uh, Jesus preached about it, a place of outer darkness, a place of eternal torments where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. People think, oh, that's, that's uh, you know, that's old-style preaching. No, that's Bible today. Uh, that's why dealing with this issue of sin is so important. Uh, mankind, realizing that they sin, they either try to pay off sin by doing good works uh, you know, but the Bible says good works are not accepted by God as a payment for sin. He says it doesn't work. They try religion. They try, you know, acts of righteousness. But the Bible makes it clear that all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags to God. They mean nothing. Uh, only Jesus saves. And that's why he came to save sinners. So we all qualify. He came to save sinners. He came to this earth to pay a debt for our sin, a debt that we can never pay on our own. He paid it by bearing our sin upon himself and going to a cross and paying for that sin with his own blood. It's by the precious blood of Jesus that our sins are washed away. And he offers that payment to everyone as a free gift. So all who place their faith in what Jesus did alone are forgiven of their sins and given this free gift of everlasting life. It's the gift of God, the greatest verse in Scripture. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful thing. Uh, you know, that's the message of the gospel. That's the good news I get to bring every week that sinners can be forgiven and brought into a relationship with Almighty God. Uh, that's the message. In our reading today, we're going to begin in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. And it says, And he went forth again, he being Jesus, went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. Again, more important than the healing of Jesus, they just proved who he was, the promised Messiah, but the message of Jesus was all important, that he taught them. And that's what he told us he was sent to do, to preach, to teach the word of God. Preaching outside uh, the synagogues, because Jesus had been in the synagogues, but we know the one man healed of leprosy, you know, broadcasted about that Jesus healed him and they, he couldn't get inside anymore. So he was outside the synagogue and it gave him opportunities to reach those who weren't welcome in the synagogue, uh, Gentiles and those that were called sinners. Okay. Uh, the next person to come into the scene is a, is a real interesting cat. Okay, I like that word. Interesting cat. I don't know why. That's like that's going back from the '60s, isn't it? It's like Sammy Davis Jr. He's an interesting cat man. So that's what he. That's what I think of in my head. All right, and he's going to bring many interesting cats with him. Cats have a way of doing that. Our backyard started with one cat, and now we have all these other cats with him. All right, this is what happens. In our yard. So this man is called, his name is Levi, verse 14. We'll read down to 17. And as he passed by, again, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat at his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's break this down. And again, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus passes by and he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Levi, we would know him as Matthew. Matthew is the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Now, this may not seem anything out of the ordinary. I mean, we've been reading this gospel of Mark, and already he's gone up to Andrew and Peter and James and John, and he told them to follow him, and we're told that they left their nets and they followed him. But this invitation to Levi, Matthew, is something that we need to look at because it is far different than anything we could imagine. And I say this because Matthew belonged to the most despised group of people in all of Israel. He was a tax collector. All right, In our time, and probably throughout time, there aren't too many people who like the tax man. Um, if you're a tax man or a tax woman here, just let me say, this is not personal, it's business, okay? Uh, but most know that taxes are necessary. They're a necessary evil. It was Ben Franklin, 
in sending a letter to his friend, listen what he said. This is pretty interesting. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. How about that? Our constitution, it seems permanent. Even that's in trouble, it looks like, in this world we're living in. But he says, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And taxes we will pay. And as much as no one likes to pay money to the government, it's something that we do. Uh, you know, it's not really enjoyable to pay your tax dollars to fund things that uh, you may feel go against your beliefs or seem wasteful. Uh, lucky for us, we live here in the great state of New Jersey. So our taxes are low, and they, they, go, to, they go to fund projects that we are uh, well aware of and are very, you know, we're in favor of. So, so it makes us feel good. Other states don't have it as good as we do here in New Jersey. People are just trying to get in here, just trying to get in. It's amazing. But the tax collectors of today are far different than the times of Jesus. So we need to get a bigger understanding of this. As I was doing this studying and preparing, I said, i got to dig deeper into this. Because you just hear a tax collector, and if you're used to being in Scripture, you just kind of just buzz by it. Okay, he's a tax collector. Nobody likes to pay taxes. But we got to look at and why this man and all tax collectors were so hated. And in understanding this, it's going to give you an idea of why this call of Jesus to Matthew to follow him is really unbelievable. Levi is a publican. In this tax system, you had a chief tax collector. Uh, in Scripture, we had a, na a man named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. Remember him, Zacchaeus? He was a chief tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. It tells us that Zacchaeus was the chief among the publicans, okay? And he was rich. Uh, Matthew's position is under the chief tax collector, a publican. And again, none of them were liked. Mostly they were despised. Alfred Edersheim, he was a Jewish convert to Christianity, a biblical scholar, and one of his most famous books is The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. So he explains that there's two types of tax collectors, the, the Gabai and the Moksha, okay? The Gabai, that's what Zacchaeus was, a chief tax collector. He handled regular income tax. At that time, it was 1% of the income. Not too bad, 1%, okay? Uh, and then there was additional taxes, he says, on grain, produce, as well as a levy on each person in the household. The Moksha, of which is Matthew, he writes... Uh, was contracted with Rome to deal with other matters of taxation. They actually had no limit to the type of things they could tax. They would tax the boat used for fishing, the fish caught, and the use of the harbor for unloading the boat. So that made Matthew very familiar with Peter and James and John and Andrew because they were fishermen and they lived in that area. Uh, the taxman would also tax the axles on wagons, the animals pulling the wagons, the goods on the wagons. They would open packages and letters, it says, rifling through to see if there was anything taxable. Travelers passing through their toll booths would have to unload all their goods, facing the humiliation of the tax collector sifting through all that they had and adding a tax to the collector's liking. 
How about that? That's pretty wild, isn't it? Gives you an idea why they were so disliked. Rome had a basic amount that they received while the tax collector added whatever he deemed desirable for his trouble. Matthew's place as a moksa would make him profit exorbitantly. So Matthew, it seems, is very rich. And it says of the moksas, which Matthew was one, they were a criminal race. Okay? Again, they were employed, enlisted by the Romans to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. So in Israel, of course, these were Jewish men collecting taxes from fellow Jews and giving that money to the occupying foreign enemy. So it comes as no surprise why they are uh, really despised, aiding the Romans, okay? Uh, so they were seen as traitors to their nation, and they were treated just like they were traitors. Uh, now, again, some of their duties were legit, but uh, they were known for cheating the people. Zacchaeus, when he finally comes to Jesus, he says that, you know, uh, if I've taken anything by false accusation, I'm going to restore fourfold. He's saying and acknowledging that he had been guilty. John MacArthur says tax collectors often strong-armed money out of people with the use of thugs. Most were despicable, vile, unprincipled scoundrels. Okay. Again, it was personally profitable because they could add whatever they wanted and they could keep that. Uh, so this group, they lived a lavish lifestyle. The poorer folk would see how they were living and it just caused more, uh, you know, they became more despicable because of that. It's sad that what people will do to, for money. And that's really what they were doing. Uh, they earned the reputation that they had. Uh, tax collectors, they'd be forbidden for, from entering the synagogue. Uh, they were essentially cut off from the Jewish community and places of worship. So they were social and religious outcasts, we're told. And again, deemed lower than, it says, the Herodians, who were a political party aligned with Herod. And they were put on the same level as harlots, okay? Uh, so this is what we said. In the Jewish Talmud, MacArthur says this, it was righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector because that was what a professional extortioner deserved. That's what the Talmud came up with. So with all what we just learned, if you listen for the last few minutes, of what a tax collector is, you could see why this man is so despised, but you really see how wild this is that Jesus would pick a guy like this for his team. Think about that. If you're on the sandlight picking teams, that would be the one guy who'd say, I ain't picking him. But Jesus picked this man. People would question that. I mean, we all know Jesus had already picked four fishermen, and you'd say they were odd choices. They weren't, you know, they weren't really educated men, uh, so they wouldn't have much influence over their fellow Jews. Okay, but now in this Matthew, this is wrong on so many levels, right? Nobody in the culture at this time was hated more than a tax collector. So to choose this man to be part of your team to reach the Jewish people, it seems unimaginable, right? Why would you pick somebody like that, an ultimate traitor that worked for the Roman government and extorted money out of the very people he would then go see? Okay, that's, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Also notice... Matthew is identified as the son of Alphaeus. Uh, the choice to be a tax collector would have been uh, 
would have shamed Jewish parents. The Bible tells us that no one lives to themselves, that our actions affect not just us, but those involved with us. They, they affect our, our moms and our dads and our spouses and our kids. So to a Jewish father, Alphaeus, he's named here, his son was a sellout. He's a traitor. Uh, but Jesus chose a traitor to be on his team. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to choose another man named Simon the Zealot. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about zealots. Zealots were part of the insurgent group called zealots who carried out random acts of violence against the Romans in a, an attempt to remove Israel from uh, you know, being under the heel of Rome. So here he has Levi, the tax collector who works for Rome, and Simon, the zealot, on the same team. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? On the same team. They were on opposite ends of the political spectrum, yet they were on the same team. But that's the way it works. You see, they were able to work together because they had a greater allegiance to Jesus than they had to their political parties. You understand? Uh, and listen, that's something in a time where everything that we do and think and say is measured by politics, it's important that us as Christians, we don't allow politics to cloud the message. The message is Jesus. Sometimes we, we lose that focus. The message is Jesus, okay? And, and I've said it before. If you have any name before Christian, you're a Republican Christian, Democrat Christian, let me tell you something. That adjective is the, really defining the kind of Christian you are. You need to be a Christian, okay? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our message is about his kingdom, and it's his gospel. So let's not get to this place, because I want to tell you something. Democrats need Jesus as much as Republicans, as much as independents, all right? So let's not get caught up in all this junk, and it's easy to get sucked in, folks. It's easy to get sucked in. These two guys were able to work it out. Isn't that something? A zealot and a tax collector on the same team. Face it, look across this room. There's some people you would never pick for your team, isn't there? And there's some people that would never pick you. And here we are in a, in a room together, playing together. Isn't that nice? That's the, that's the goodness of God right there, okay? It says he passed by. He saw Levi. Got to consider his name Levi, okay? It's likely that Jesus is the one who changed his name to Matthew. Jesus renames a lot of his disciples, right? Simon, he says, you're now Peter. John and James, the son of Zebedee, became the sons of thunder. So it's not saying in the scripture, but more than likely, he changed Levi's name to Matthew, which means gift of God. You know, when the Bible changes, uh, changes our name, it reminds us of how God sees us. God sees us as a completed work, okay? In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it tells us it's by grace that we're saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, your salvation is not because your goodness, your good works or anything. As I said earlier, it's a gift of God's grace. After coming to Christ, it says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That word workmanship is poema. We get that word poem for it. It means a masterpiece. An artist sees his completed work in his mind before he ever puts a, a brush to the canvas. You see, he already sees us completed. Now, mind you, some of us look like a Picasso painting, okay? Or can you ever see the Picasso paintings? You're like, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> you know, I, don't get, I don't get Picasso. I'm not like that, you know? It's kind of like crazy to me. But, but the fact is, 
listen, when God changes a person's name, he's given them a new identity. Right? He went from Abram to Abraham, the father of many. He went from Sarai to Sarah, the mother of nations. And guess what? He gave them those names before they had any kids. Because God sees the completed work. So for each of us saved here today, God has a completed image of all of us. And he uses the good, the bad, and the ugly of life to shape us into his masterpiece. For those here who are married, praise the Lord. God gave you a spouse. He gave you built-in sandpaper to help shape you. (laughs) Right? Just the way it is. Just the way it is. It's built in. Notice I said a spouse. I didn't say a wife. Because I'm not stupid. Right? Right there. God is shaping us. That's what he does. And he sees the completed work. Isn't that an awesome thing? Ingrid was talking about it. Listen, he sees us as complete. Changes his name. In Luke's account on this call of Matthew, it tells us that Jesus said, follow me. And then he says this, and he left all, rose up and followed him. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing. That's a big thing right there. There must have been something missing in Matthew's heart that when Jesus walked up to him and said, follow me, for him to leave everything. But no one leaves everything at the first call of Jesus. Nobody does. I mean, even for believers here, you know, who've walked with the Lord, sometimes we're hesitant to respond when the Lord impresses something on our heart. A lot of times we don't respond first off, right? I mean, you know, I was praying with our South Jersey pastors group. Lord, we got to do something. I don't understand. He told me, put it on my heart, call pastors. And my first response was, I'm not doing that. Right? I'm not doing that because that was out of my comfort zone. Uh, And that's when when I thought about it, I said, this has to be from God. Because he's stretching me. It's out of my comfort zone. Well, don't we like comfort? We like comfort. Yeah, we like comfort. Believe me. When I put on this suit today, I said, is this comfortable enough to wear? Or is it a tourniquet around my waist? I have to... I had to think about it. We like comfort. For Matthew, he must have heard Jesus preaching somewhere. Maybe he heard him several times. I mean, his tax booth was in Capernaum, and Jesus had done a lot of work there. So evidently, he at least heard about Jesus. You know, people probably told him of the wonderful works that Jesus had been doing in the area. You know, Jesus had been teaching in the area. Maybe one of the disciples, you know, like I said, they were fishermen. Maybe they went up to him and said, as they're paying their taxes, "Ah, you should see what this Jesus is doing. But everything Jesus stood for, Everything he taught was the direct opposite of the greed that drove people like Matthew to become a tax collector. But yet, Jesus calls on Matthew, a traitor to his own people, to come and follow him. And as we read in Luke, Matthew left all, rose up, and followed Jesus. Let me tell you something. Matthew's action was all in. And there was a difference between his calling of the fishermen and the calling of Matthew in in what they left behind. I mean, the fishermen at any moment could go back fishing. You know, for James and John, it was their father's business. They could go back any time. Matter of fact, there were times in Scripture they did go back fishing. But Matthew didn't have that option, okay? 
there were people, as terrible as the job was, there were people in line for the job because they made good money. Again, most people do anything for money. They were willing to be ostracized for money. Matthew understood that the day he walked out of his tax booth, he would never get, get the job back. He was saying goodbye to his past life for the rest of his life. So he gave up, and what he gave up was very significant. In one move, it says he left all. He risked everything to follow Jesus. In calling Matthew to be a disciple, and in Matthew following Jesus, Jesus demonstrates his authority and power to forgive sins, but also to save people that most would consider unsavable. You ever, you know, we've all had times where you thought somebody was unsavable. You would look and say, there's no way that guy's ever getting saved, right? It's even worse when somebody else says that about you. There's no way that guy's ever getting saved. Let me tell you something. I have been honored. Hamilton's had a lot of characters, a lot of cats in this town, all right? And I got to say, a lot of guys that I was told that person would never get saved. And you know what the amazing thing is? These people got saved, and I was honored enough when they passed away to do their funerals. People that would be sitting in, in the church, and other people would say, are you kidding me? That guy came to Jesus? He saves the unsavables. Listen, if you're looking at, at someone who may be unsavable, just look in the mirror. Just think of your life and how God broke through your life and saved you, right? Praise God for that. It makes you wonder what happened in Matthew's life that would make him betray his people. As I was looking at this, I'm thinking, you know what? His name is Levi. Uh, let me dig a little deeper in that. Well, that means if his name was Levi, most likely he was from the Levites. That was the priestly tribe. And according to the law of Moses, all priests were to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Okay, uh, they would get qualified men from the tribe of Levi to to be priests, and those who weren't qualified for the priestly part of it, uh, they would serve in the temple. You know, take care of the tabernacle and then take care of the temple. They served as judges. They were teachers of God's law. So Matthew was around religion for most of his life. He was around religion. He was an educated man. You know, when he wrote his gospel. He's the only one of the four Gospels direct, really addressed to the Jewish audience. And his Gospel, more than any other Gospel, it focuses on the law of God and the fulfillment of Scripture. You see it over and over, how this was written and fulfilled. Matthew gives us the genealogy, so there's much of his Jewish background because he was raised with this. He would write about how Jesus would denounce the Pharisees he wrote of the prophecies of Jesus, of the end times, the end of the temple, more than any other gospel. Maybe Matthew, being raised in a religious background, saw the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and it turned him off to his upbringing. But the good news is a foundation was laid. He had the information could it be that if you train up a child in the way he should go, that when he is old, he won't depart from it? You know, we had a dedication last week. We're having a dedication this week. And I love that verse. Train up a child in the way they should go. Build the foundation early. 
When they were old, at least they have something to build on. But in the middle, they may take the crazy train. All right? There's a lot of people who have taken, is this the stupid exit? And have gone stupid. Right? A lot of people. A lot of people have been on the stupid train. I was on the stupid train for a while. Anybody here been on the stupid train? You know what? I think I'm going to take that stupid train. Right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad place, the stupid train. You know? And maybe, maybe that's what he did. He departed. Stupid train leaving at five. Well, I'm going to be on that one. Listen. Yeah, that's right. Whatever the reason for Matthew to become a traitor for his people, the day came when Jesus came calling. You see, Jesus knows the heart of people. He knows our hearts better than we do. Because the Bible tells us our heart is deceitful. But it's not deceitful to Jesus. Maybe he saw Matthew's heart. And he saw a heart that was unfulfilled. He had wealth. He had power. But something was missing. Maybe the price that he paid for the wealth and the power was not worth it. He got what he wanted. But he lost what he had. And now he had to endure. Hearing, you know, the way people would talk about him having to be isolated from those he grew up with, even his own family. And he was hated bitterly by the people. And maybe this Matthew who sat there at that, that toll booth was aching for forgiveness and reconciliation, both with God and with his people. But how could anyone ever forgive him? How could he ever get it back? You know, maybe he wished he could turn back the hands of time, but felt it was too late, that there was no way to fix it. There's sometimes that people think there's no way to fix it. I'm sure there are people here today, they could be in church today, who think they've gone too far, and guess what? There's no way to fix it. The Lord knows your need. You may sit here with a, a smile on your face, but he sees the cry of your heart. And whatever Jesus saw in Matthew's heart, the scripture doesn't say, but Jesus came calling and Matthew answered the call. I know there's some that'll say, well, you can't resist the call of the Lord. But I think of the rich young ruler. There was another person that had it all. And Jesus came calling. We'll see him in Mark chapter 10. It says, behold, Jesus loved him and said unto him, you lack one thing, sell whatever you have, give to the poor. And come, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus loved him. Jesus said, follow me. And then we read, the rich young ruler was sad. And he went away grieved because he had great possessions. Not everybody responds to the love of Jesus. We don't know if he ever changed at the end. Scripture doesn't tell us. But the Bible does tell us that today if you hear his voice... Harden not your heart. The Bible tells us also the Spirit of God does not always strive with man. The, God is not always wrestling with you. So if you sense the Lord calling you today, don't shut him down. I'll tell you right now, he doesn't force himself on anyone. He knocks. He's a gentleman. But you have to answer. Matthew answers the call and he follows Jesus. And we're told in verse 15, and it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, 
Many publicans and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. There's that, all the, the other crazy cats, and he takes them to him. In Luke's account, we read, Levi made a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him. Matthew makes a great feast for Jesus, and he invites the only people that, are, that hang with him, other publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. Matthew didn't forget his sinful friends after he converted himself. He wanted them to have what he has. You see, that's, a, that's an important thing that we need to understand. How Matthew arranged this encounter. He was intentional about what he did. And he did his best method, a, a free meal. I love a free meal. I have a way of showing up, as you could tell. All right? So here, Jesus is having a meal with the most hated group of people in Jewish society. This wouldn't go unnoticed, verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? They, they see this happening. Well, we know who the publicans are. They're tax collectors. So who can these sinners be if they're worse than the tax collectors? Sinners oftentimes re related to harlots and Gentiles. And those who didn't care about the law of Moses. These were people who didn't care about God. So they were gathered together, and they, the Pharisees see them as tax gatherers and sinners. But you know what? Jesus sees them as people. That's something we have to understand. It's, it's easy for us to label people. You know, give them their labels, tax gatherers, sinners. Jesus sees them beyond their labels. He's sitting there, and he's eating with what would be social outcasts tax gatherers and sinners. This Jesus who teaches in the synagogue, you know, the Pharisees are saying, wait a minute, he's going to lower himself to be around people like this? How is it possible? Doesn't he know better? Doesn't he realize what people are going to think? You see, the Pharisees were looked up. They were looked up to by the regular folks of that day. And you know what? They were looked up to so much that the Pharisees started to buy into it. They got big-headed. They started buying into it. They thought they were all that. You see that with the prayer of the Pharisee in the temple when he says, God, I thank thee that I am not as any other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Isn't that a nice prayer? Can you imagine somebody praying that next to you? Lord, I thank you. I'm not like them. But that's how the, public, that's how the Pharisees thought. The problem with the Pharisees are they're self-righteous, and, and that led to separation. Rather than love these people and try to reach them, they instead shun them. Listen, there are religious Pharisees that are in churches today. You know, I, I remember, you know, being told that you got to wear this or you got to wear that or you can't come in. That's pharisaical. You understand? How do we feel when people come in that maybe don't look Christian into the church. And what do we do? Do we shun them or do we welcome them? You know, I'm not saying that you accept their sins. Jesus says he was teaching them sinners to repent. But do we accept them? Do we love on them? Do we reach out to them? Because they're people. Jesus would look at people and as he says, these are sheep without a shepherd. It says, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, 
but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The doctor makes a house call. Anybody remember when doctors made house calls? I remember that. Boy, you people are old. <laughs> doctors made house calls. Now they do a video conference. How about that? How do you feel? Bad. Okay. You know, video conference. Take your temperature. <laughs> Notice Jesus says, they uh, that are not sick have no need of the doctor. Only those who are sick need a doctor. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is Jesus saying that there are some in society that will meet God's standard of righteousness, so they're in no need of Jesus? No. Everyone born to Adam and Eve are born with a sin nature. That's why Paul in Romans 3 can say there are none righteous, no, not one. What Jesus is saying is that there are actually some who think they're so righteous they don't need Jesus. And that's the problem. That, that when people think they have no need or no, you know, they don't need help from God, then they're not in a position to be helped. You know, there are people that you see every day that think they're self-sufficient, that when you tell them about God, they don't even want to hear you. Some of the most difficult people to, rele- uh, to reach with the gospel are the most religious, just the way it is. The ones who go to church every week, some go to church every day. Good people, give money, you know, help different causes. So they don't think they need coming to Jesus. They're good. This is why, this is why a lot of times God sends trouble into our lives to make us stop clinging to this uh, thought that we could handle our own lives. You see? Let me tell you something. God will send problems. So when you find yourself at the bottom of the barrel, here's the good news. Guess who's at the bottom of the barrel? Jesus. And maybe you're like a Matthew and you're at the top of the heap, but you're empty. And guess who's at the top of the heap? Jesus. See, when you finally come to the end of yourself and you find that life is empty, that you're not all that you think you are, guess what? You'll find Jesus. Jesus says to those who know they're sick, there's a doctor in the house and his name is Jesus. Those who come to him will be made well. Jesus wasn't leaving the Pharisees out, okay? The invitation was to everyone. The Pharisees didn't realize they were sick. And the worst kind of sickness is the kind you don't know you have. So you could be sitting here on a Sunday and look well. You may have everyone faked out, but Jesus sees the heart. And listen, once you are ready to own it and you finally come to Jesus, he will make you well. Now, as I close this morning, in Mark and Luke's account, we saw them, how he called Levi. He passed by, it says in Mark, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of of custom. In Luke, it says, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi. But in Matthew's account, the Matthew who was the man who was converted here, listen what he writes. And as Jesus passed from thence... He saw a man named Matthew. Isn't that something? Jesus saw a man named Matthew. You see, he looked past the money table. He looked past the labels, the publican. He looked past all the stuff that people were saying when he looked at Matthew, and he saw a man. 
He saw a person who was hurting. He saw a person who was trapped. He saw a man who on the outside looked like he had it all, but on the inside was a broken man, a man named Matthew. You know, Matthew is the only gospel writer to record these words spoken by Jesus. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew wrote that because guess what? Jesus sees past all the junk and he sees men and women that are hurting. He sees men and women who feel trapped. He sees men and women that are perplexed, don't know what to do. They're paralyzed. He sees, he sees men and women who are striving, trying to win God's affection and God's favor. And he sees men and women who are heavy laden with guilt and shame and fear. And he says, come unto me. And I will give you rest. Let me tell you something. If that's you today, I invite you to follow Jesus. He didn't call the righteous, but he called sinners to repentance. And guess what? We all qualify. If you've never come to Jesus, let today be that moment you come to Jesus. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. It's amazing when you think that if he could call somebody like a Matthew, he could call somebody like you. He comes after us. I love that song. I love that song. And he's always running after us. I praise God that he does. Because there were many times in my life I was running the other way. And he kept coming. Praise God for his great salvation.